Let's go. You're listening to Making Data Simple, where we make the world of data effortless, relevant, and yes, even fun. Hey folks, welcome back to the Making Data Simple podcast. Al Martin, your host with the most is here. I appreciate you being here as always. Today's guest is Neil Sahota. He's an IBM master inventor. He used to be with IBM. We got to talk about that, of course. United Nations AI advisor, chief innovation officer for the Irvine School of Law. Today, he's the CEO of ASCII Labs. This guy does it all. He's like the, the, the most interesting man alive, I think, uh, Neil Sohota, right? That should be the topic of this, of this session. I think I always have a topic. Anyway, he's a globally recognized speaker and author, a founding member of the UN's AI for Good initiative, and he's here to talk about how we disrupt the box, in air quotes. Through his work with global Fortune 500 companies as a change maker, he's created a disruptive thinking framework called Tuckbo to show his people how you can think differently. Neil, welcome, buddy. How you doing? I'm doing all right, Al. How about yourself? I'm doing, I'm doing pretty good. That is quite the, uh, the intro. I went out in your LinkedIn, man. It's like, Pages upon pages upon pages. I've not seen a neat LinkedIn like that, I don't think. <laughs> well, I, I'll tell you my secret, Al, is that uh, I only need three hours of sleep a night, so I have a little more time <laughs> to do stuff. <laughs> All right, I'm out. I'm out. And you must be a sports fan because I like the listeners can't see, of course, but we do this podcast and we have video when we're doing the podcast or recording the podcast, and I see Stanley Cup behind you. I see football what, uh, Young from the 49ers uh, in a, a jersey. Yeah. I see a picture of you standing near a baseball player. Tell me, are you a sports fanatic or what? I'm crazy about sports. I uh, I grew up near Yankee Stadium. I, I played the four major sports. I used to drive my mom nuts because she's always like, you have to do something else other than sports, which is ironically how I want to get into computers because my parents wanted me to <laughs> learn like piano or something. I'm like, uh I just picked it random. Uh, how about computers <laughs> instead? <laughs> to say, uh, there's only three major sports, man. I don't know what the fourth one could be. There's baseball, there's football, and there's basketball. Oh, where's the love for the ice hockey, man? That's <laughs> <laughs> okay. sport to watch live. I do. Actually, I've been to a couple of games, and I, I do agree with you. We don't have it here in Kansas City, so I don't get to do – too much of ice hockey. We, we've had uh, minor leagues, though, and, and so I've went to those. All right, very good. So, um, look, I gave an introduction, but as part of our protocol, I always want to give you the floor to tout and talk about yourself, your experience, your start, and what brings you here. I appreciate that. I'll keep it keep it brief. Um, I'm literally the guy that always sought the path of most resistance. I know that's counterintuitive. But I really like learning and I really like problem solving. And what I've come to realize throughout my life is that the big things in life, the tackling the, the big challenges, they're not easy. And if you always look for the path of least resistance, you never really the opportunities to learn and kind of connect those dots together that unleash innovation or disruption. So I always sought like the most challenging classes in in college. I was willing to tackle the big things like, what can I do to help fight climate change? And that's kind of the guy I've really become. And that's 
took me down the path of like AI. It's now taking me the path of merging AI with the metaverse and cognitive science at ACSI Labs. And, you know, it's not that I need to do big, great things. It's what I've learned is we all have a part to play, big and small. But if we don't do our piece, we never really solve the big things. So don't be afraid to embrace those challenges is really my mantra. What do you go to college for? What did you start in college for? I actually uh, studied mathematics, computer science, and political science. A little odd combination. Math, computer science, most people get. But what I really learned was to really get things done in life, you have to be able to persuade people. And that's where the poli sci really came to play. You were at IBM quite a long time, right? I was. I uh we started early in the early days. Um, I had been working on some stuff that got the attention of IBM R&D. That uh, at the time there were a couple of guys saying we're working on a secret project named uh, Watson, and yeah. they're like, uh, "You want to come on board and do some stuff with IBM?" And uh, it was it was interesting, and that's what kind of set me down this AI path. How long were you at IBM? Uh, I was at IBM for about twelve years. So why would you ever leave IBM? I, you know, I reached a point where I, I kind of felt like I had done as much as I possibly could. Uh, at the time, I was getting more involved with the UN. They made me their AI advisor. We were launching the AI for Good initiative. And I felt it was just time for a change. And, uh, you know, my, my wife was right when she said, you you probably don't realize it, but you're probably burned out. You probably need a break. You seem really gung-ho about the UN stuff. Maybe just dial it back and focus on that as well as we've been talking about writing this book for a couple of years. Take some time and do that. And so All right. So let's let's dissect this a little bit then. You mentioned UN. Let's talk about that. When did the UN come in? Did you knock on UN's door or something? What do you do to, to, to say, <laughs> hello, uh, I want to create an AI for good initiative? Well, the, the UN, it happened by accident. It happened back in 2015. I have a very good friend, Stephen Ibaraki, that I had just done a big favor for him. And he called me up to thank me for it. He's like, hey, by the way, I'm, I'm sitting on this organizing committee for the UN. They do this big event every four years. You have the General Assembly, you have the world leaders show up. And I put your name forward to give a, a speech. And I thought he was totally yanking my chain. Right. Yeah. Right. Whatever. He's like, no. And two of the UN guys actually had heard you talk about AI before. They're like, you think you would come and do it? And I'm like, he's totally making this up. I'm like, yeah, whatever. Didn't believe it. Hour later, I get an email from the secretary general with an in invitation to come speak at this event. And I was like, whoa. <laughs> so now let's be clear. Who are you speaking to? So the event was for the world leaders and the, the, all the ambassadors. So I was so world leaders being. It was, at the time it was like Angela Merkel, but you had the South African president. You had all these big, big world leaders that run all these countries there, not just the ambassadors. That would have been Obama's time, wouldn't it have been? I don't it know. It was. It was Obama's time. Obama was not there. Um, you know, it was Joe Biden who was vice was president. Was he too good for you, or what? A pretty busy guy at the time. <laughs> <laughs> You know, he's yeah. coming into his last year, thinking about his legacy, I'm sure. You had the U.S. presidential election already starting. Well, Merkel was there. Merkel was there. Um, That's pretty impressive, though, man. Uh, so, look, I've done a lot of presentations, a lot of pitches in front of a lot of people. Uh, but I got to imagine the nervousness for that one could be a little bit different than the other ones. It, it was, particularly because I was told in advance that most of the world leaders think that AI is Terminator time. That is, is the robots what? Gonna, Sorry? 
It's Terminator time. Terminator time. That's what they believe. Robots are going to rise up, conquer the world, eradicate humanity. So no pressure. (laughs) What year are we talking here? 2015. 2015. This is when they're going to, we're going to replace, they're going to take all our jobs, AI. I'll just take the jobs. There was a legitimate fear. I mean, I remember even during, before the Jeopardy challenge with Watson, we were getting death threats. I mean, that, uh, during the, the broadcasting of Jeopardy, there were people marching in front of the headquarters. So we, we hadn't really moved very far, I think, off that doomsday scenario back in 2015. At the time, people still were kind of wondering what, what is AI and what's going to happen. So what was your pitch? I gave a, a little more optimistic speech about AI, but I didn't just talk about what it is. I was actually talking about how we're already using it for public service and how it could be applied towards the sustainable development goals, the SDGs. And I got a big you know, ovation from everybody. And that night at the reception, the secretary general came up to me with some other people and they said, you know, we never actually thought about using AI. We're worried about what would happen and how do we regulate and this kind of stuff. But we never thought about using it as a tool. And that's, kind of what got the momentum going where they're like, hey, help us figure out what we could do with this. And that's really what was the birth of the AI for Good initiative within the United Nations. Now, how is that possible? They've got to be working on AI in the background. I mean, I know that they're working on AI in the background. Is a lot of the ambassadors of the UN, were they just out of whack or what, what, what's going on here? Explain that a little further if you could. You got to remember the UN is a collection of like 47 agencies and each yeah. one of them has their own little domain. You got like, you know, UNESCO with environmental issues. You got UNILO, which is focused on labor relations. You got UNHCR that deals with refugees. And so you have these super silos and they're, they're kind of worried about, you know, their, their own programming and what they do that the UN is, you know, people think it's very slow moving and bureaucratic. It, it is. I saw the way they develop policy. So it wasn't even on their radar to What'd you do uh, spend a whole like week with them. I pretty much did. <laughs> yeah. That sounds like fun. By the way, I think if you're talking 2015, what was that? David, David Cameron, UK. Yeah. David Cam- That's right. Yeah. David Cameron. And, that was a uh, lifetime ago. It was a lifetime ago. They, they went through a lot of prime ministers. <laughs> they, they, they have. They're going to get a new one. <laughs> yeah, no, a new one's coming up. Boris Johnson just quit like, a, what, a week ago? Not even a week ago? A couple of so days like, ago. Yeah, a couple of yeah. days ago. A couple of days ago. So let's back up then for a second. So how do you get into AI? I know you've written a book on AI. Tell us about it. Uh, I, I got into AI by accident because back in 2004, business intelligence was kind of taken off. And you know, I was working with some very notable companies and everyone was saying like, hey, Neil, it's amazing what computers are telling us. And I'm like, they're not telling us anything. I mean, back then, Al, we had these great you know, packages to collect tons of data, store it, you know, sl- you could slice and dice it, make nice looking reports, but it wasn't like the computer was telling us anything. And it got me thinking like, well, could it? I mean, machines could crunch a lot of data. Could a machine look at it like a person and draw insight from it. And that's what really set me down the AI path and created a bunch of patents and other things. And that's what got the attention of IBM R&D back in the day. But as, as my work evolved and I saw there was a lot of misunderstanding, miscommunication, and look, it's the third generation of computing. People, we have whole new tools that people didn't know how to use them. 
I wanted to write this book because I saw a lot of fear mongering. I heard a lot of people that either the books were way too technical or it was doomsday. I'm like, I want to write a book to help especially non-technical people understand what AI is, but more importantly, how they could actually use it, use it for their businesses, use it for their communities. And that's why I want to write this book. And so it's, it's a, essentially a very easy to understand, non-technical book that tells you a little bit about what AI is, but explains the capabilities and gives you the framework and how you can apply it to solve pretty much any kind of problem. And that and book so, being Own the AI Revolution. Yes, thank you. Own the AI Revolution. And it was named Best Business Book of 2019. Was it? Yeah. By whom? Uh, by Soundview. So they're a group that actually recommends books to the C-suites of global Fortune 500 companies. They, I didn't know. All, all I knew is I only knew I got my book was named that when they tagged me in a post announcing the winners for the year. They've done that to me with the, the podcast before. And I'm like, wow. I mean, that's nice. interesting. Well, yeah. So sometimes, yeah, you, you, you're always looking at it. You're like, hmm, is, is this for real or what? But great. The best book of 2019, Own the AI Revolution. It's more of a business book than it is a technical book. Uh, got it. Did this come before or after the, a, or the UN piece? It came after. So I, ironically, when the UN found out I was writing this book, they were very insistent on hosting the book launch. So the book was actually launched during the Air for Good Summit in 2019. That's yeah. fantastic. So you're like on uh, friendship terms with the UN then today. They're True. like the, the, the UN is very, they're very grateful and I'm very grateful for the opportunity as well. But, you know, if you're really passionate about doing good like I am and you commit the time, the UN, you know, they're actually very good about helping to spread that message because, they want to try and empower people, and that's the opportunity that they see with my book and with AI for Good. All right, so I do want to get in this book, but now you see, let's finish up on the UN then. So what's AI for Good? What is it looking to achieve? How do you define success? And you mentioned, I'm asking too many questions at once. You also <laughs> mentioned that that's not a good host, but you mentioned they reward you with you know optics and, and a platform. How much time are you dedicating? So AI for Good. How much time are you dedicating? How do you measure success? Blah, blah, blah. It, it consumes probably about a third to half my time, right? Remember, I only need three hours of sleep, everybody. Are you doing this for free? <laughs> I do this for free. It's a volunteer, right? The, 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 the challenge with working with the UN or working for the UN is everything becomes a conflict of interest. So even like teaching a class at the university becomes a conflict of interest and I wasn't willing to give up some of that because I feel it's actually very important, especially the teaching and getting the future generations ready for, well, the challenges of tomorrow. But AI yeah, for so What does that mean? Did you have to give up the UN? Are you still with the UN? Or are you just no, playing it careful? No, it's still there. As long as I'm not paid, I don't have the conflict of interest problem. So my, my role as a UN AI advisor is completely voluntary. But you can get paid elsewhere. Um, if Yeah, I can get paid elsewhere. Like, you know, being CEO of my company, speaking, all these things, not not an issue. Ironically, all these UN ambassadors are getting paid, just so you know. Yeah, but you know how that works is their host country actually has to pay their salary. Understood. Understood. <laughs> They're still getting paid. Still getting paid, yeah. Why don't they all contribute to, like, gather up a collection pot at the end of the UN briefing and then give you some money? <laughs> <laughs> 
you know, Al, if you want to pitch that idea, I'll connect you with the right people. <laughs> I'm full of great ideas. They might not be on your level, but there's some good ideas, man. <laughs> AI for good, you know, so keep going. Tell me about it. So it's actually a solutions-based initiative. So it's not, not just policy and regulation. We actually want to create real solutions towards the SDGs. So we have things like, you know, zero hunger, uh, improve, you know, diversity, smart cities. So we actually run projects to actually create real solutions. So we have 117 active projects today. I think we've completed over 100 projects, actually almost 200 projects in the life of AI for good. But we've done and things these are like AI solutions specifically. AI, AI, yeah, AI specifically. So what does that mean? You're, you're, are you writing them, or do you have a team that's writing them, or you have a UN team that's writing them? In, um, you know, you're, you're creating machine learning models, or, or what are you saying? It's a combination. So it's some of the UN folks, the different agencies. It's also the one of the things I do is help build the partnerships. So we have partners in academia, private industry. NGOs that are nonprofits. So people, again, they volunteer and contribute their time, money, resources, people, equipment, because local problems have global solutions. So like one of the things we've done is we've built very simple AI tools to help farmers in impoverished areas like Bangladesh and Malawi, where they don't have access to great topsoil, don't access to a lot of water, but they have simple tools that help them figure out what to plant, where to plant, and they don't need high-speed internet. They don't need some supercomputers or anything like that. And we've seen them be able to grow about 30% more crops while using less water, while using less topsoil. What are you, examining yields through AI of their fields to determine the best use of uh, their planting methods, et cetera? That's part, part of it. So, yeah, we're looking at the, the topsoil conditions. We're looking at what seeds would be most effective. We're looking at a balance between cash crops and consumption crops, you know, based on pricing. We're looking at climate information, potential insect infestation. So we're crunching thousands of different data points to figure out the optimal mix. It's gotten to the point where the AI can even suggest, like, you know, if you plant these seeds two milliliters to the right, you'll probably improve the yield by 4%. How does this go about getting approved, presented? I mean, do you go before the UN and say, hey, I got the latest idea. We're going to create a machine learning model around the collection plate so I can get paid who's in? I mean, how does it work? So we have a triage process. Uh, there's a whole group dedicated inside the UN to, to, to doing this, and I help them manage the portfolio. But people can submit their ideas. And if we see that there's enough merit, you know, basically the business case here, then we'll activate the project and see what resources we can get from the member nations, the other agencies, as well as what other our partners are willing to contribute towards making that happen. So sometimes some of them are IBM competitors. Let's say like we're willing to step in and provide people and money and other things to help make this happen. So you go get corporate sponsorship in some cases or in many cases then? Yeah, that's, that's, part, that's definitely part of it. But a lot of the funding does come from the member nations. Any other use cases that uh, are prominent right now that you're worth mentioning? Well, one of the things that we're working on is in Africa, if I remember the stat correctly, there's one doctor for every about 2,000 people. And I think the average person lives about 70, 80 kilometers away from some sort of health facility or doctor. Mm -hmm. So we've been actively working to create little tools. So mobile mobile devices are very prevalent in Africa. 
to build like a self-contained like little AI assistant that a, a local could use. So even though they're not a health professional, this little like little tablet or phone can kind of scan. You can prompt questions, and if it's treatable, explain to the like the 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 person like here's how you could help treat their illness or help treat their their injury. And if it's too severe, ask to call in like a helicopter to actually take them to a facility. So we're basically trying to turn uh, local people with no healthcare training into like physicians assistants so that they can provide some basic level of healthcare services. I would imagine there's a few steps before you get to send the chopper. There, there is. It's not just the chopper comes <laughs> right away. <laughs> so you got. So that's cool. So healthcare in Africa, the farm, farm yield. Any others worth mentioning? Sounds like you got a lot going on. There, there there's a lot. Like I said, we have 117 active projects at the moment. 117. But, I didn't catch that. Yeah, but there's there's a lot of work like we're doing right now around digital twins and deep fakes, where we're kind of where we're combining the AI with the metaverse. So with digital twins, you know, we can kind of experiment in a safe space. So if you've ever watched the Doctor Strange movies, Al? I have. So like if, for the, the, the audience, if you watch them, they have this place they can go to called the Mirror Universe, which is a complete replica of the, the real world, but they can practice magic in there and there's no damage to the real world. So the digital twin is kind of the same thing. We create a virtual representation of your office building or your farm and you can kind of experiment. And that's that's one of the things we've been kind of we were looking at in terms of like climate change, for example, like can we try some of these different things and what would actually happen? What would be environmental impact? The flip to digital twins though is deep fakes, where people are creating, you know, usually of other of people for malicious intent of virtual representation to fool. And so we're actually we're also working on tools to figure out can we do a better job of detecting these deep fakes, because if you're you know a big name like Joe Biden or Boris Johnson or Tom Cruise or whoever, your the deep fake will get psychoanalyzed to death to see if it's true or not. But if you're the average mm-hmm. person, you don't have much recourse. So is there a way we can kind of identify is this a trusted is this the real person or not? Nice. I want a mirror universe that I just golf in all the time. (laughs) That'd be terrific. But I hope this universe. So actually, that's not true. I want the mirror universe to be the working universe. And and then I can golf in the real universe all the time. Well, you figure that out, man. You know, we can do do that, Al. We can actually do that. Let's do it. That's what we're (laughs) waiting for. Clone Al is better, better than the real Al. (laughs) Um, So let's talk about the book. Um, Own the AI revolution. What does that mean? Own the AI revolution. And it is interesting when you mention it's a business book. You've said that many times to to repeat it, because I would have thought that, you know, you're going to go into machine learning models. You know, we're going to use Python here, uh, notebooks here, blah, blah, blah. But this is really about business and how to, I guess, own the AI revolution. Tell me, Tell me how you own the AI revolution. Well, if you'll indulge me with a little side story to, to set this up. Of course. That was not the original title of the book. The original title of the book was Uber Yourself Before You Get Kodak. So my buddy Peter Diamandis uses that phrase. He's actually one of the interviews of my book. He's like, Neil, you could totally use it. I'm cool with it. 
but my publisher hated it. <laughs> I was going to say, I, all, you know, publishers set the title. That's what yeah. many people don't know. They're going to set the title, and and I'm sure it came across their desk, and they say, "What the hell is this?" No, we're not doing that. So they, they what, what was your title though? Uber yourself before you get Kodak. Before you get Kodak, it's kind of a long title, man. I like the like the idea around it. Anyway, my, my, my publisher actually wanted to call the book AI or Die, which was kind of against this whole thing. I'm trying to write an optimistic book to help people. <laughs> but well, they that would have scared the UN. You'd have set the UN right back to their fear <laughs> mongering days. Yeah. But they were nice enough to work with me and say, okay, let's figure something out. And going through this, one of the things was, look, we're going, AI is triggering the fourth industrial revolution. And we have a lot of smart technologists that understand the, the models and NLU and all these things, but they don't often have the insight to understand the on-the-ground pain points of a doctor or a lawyer or a marketer. So, you know, there, there's a new kind of combination here. And that's where we realize, okay, well, we're trying to help people kind of own this, you know, fourth industrial revolution. And that was kind of this, the sourcing of the name. That's how we came with Own the AI Revolution, that... This is a book for yeah business people. So, you know, technologists obviously can also read it and at least see how some of these things get applied. But we're going through a whole new transformation, and I, I know a lot of people are scared of change and what this might mean. And a lot of people are just kind of sitting back, thinking like, I'm just along for the ride. What I want them to really understand is like, you don't have to be the passenger; you can actually be the driver. And you know, the the book gives you the tools to teach you how to be that driver. Around the UN, I mean, you're speaking with all these folks, you're getting a lot of input. I'm sure you've got input on your book. Where are we today in your estimation around AI? Where are we really at? Where will we be short term? And where do you think we're headed? Interesting questions, Al. I think we've made a lot of progress in the last three, four years, in large part because I think there's more awareness and more acceptance of the technology. So I think you have a lot of people now realizing, like, I need to be doing something. I got to figure that out. And so they're actively seeking solutions. And I, and I see this in legal services, which is definitely one of the slowest moving industries ever. But about three years ago, they went all in on AI. I, I saw these big mega firms suddenly acting like activating 20 AI projects. Where's all this coming from? And I think we've moved the needle. I think we've moved beyond some of the hype. And I think we started to realize that, yeah, there's value here, but some of the things that we thought were hype or impossible are probably doable. We're not we're not going to use AI to cure cancer in the next you know five years. There's it's just very complex, but we could probably tackle some smaller things and accelerate you know things like well we can offload the common cold stuff off of doctors, let them free up on the more serious illnesses for their patients. So I, I think what we're seeing right now is a big shift in that kind of thinking. And I think you've seen more people realize that we can actually use AI to, towards things like artificial empathy, that even though the machines don't feel the emotions, they become really good about detecting the emotional state of a person, which is why we're seeing a lot more mental health solutions with AI today. And I think you see more, more creativity, whereas machines they're not going to imagine things, but they can actually help us do more things in terms of like arts and philosophy. So we're making the shift from, you know, natural intelligence, not so much just to just artificial intelligence, but to what I call 
hybrid intelligence. Now we're realizing we can augment our human abilities with the machine capabilities. So it's really becoming the integration of human and machine together. But I, I do think, look, we are using AI today to help cure cancer. Notably, I think a big one is skin cancer, uh, where you know AI is much better at being able to put all these different pictures of different forms of skin cancer and being able to identify whether it's skin cancer or not. It's already doing so. It's going to really have a profound impact. But where do you think we're headed? Are, are we heading towards Terminator? No, I don't believe in the Terminator future. I think we're actually moving towards <laughs> the cyborg future, that we're going cyborg to integrate future. machines into essentially ourselves. You know, I, I was a couple of years ago working with some clinical researchers and doctors where you know, if you're born without like a limb, like you don't have a hand, for example, you're born without it, you're losing an accident, the brain can still send signals to the stump. And, you know, smart technologists like, okay, we just got to be able to decode brain waves, right? We, we don't even understand how the brain really works. Can't, can't do that. But working again with doctors, clinical researchers, again, marrying the business with the technical knowledge together, what we realized was when the brain sends that signal, it triggers a process in the body. And part of that is muscle and tendon motion in your arm. So we slapped an IoT sensor device among above the right, like the elbow with the missing hand, and taught AI to decode what those muscle tendon motions mean. And then translate that into a robotic hand. And so now you have people that like don't have a hand, they can they can actually control it through these motions with their mind, but they can do fists, they can do high five. That's why I really see the cyborg future coming to be that we're going to implement some of these capabilities for ourselves, that we're going to enhance our, our things. Like we've already got the uh, experimental surgeries. I think it's been done a dozen times where we put digital cameras into a blind person's eyes and can transmit the image in. It's black and white and grainy, but we know it'll get better. But I can see a future where we all have something like that ingrained even if we're not blind, but now we can see X-ray, we can see microwave, we can see infrared. That's why I really believe that we're going to we're going to integrate human machine literally together for a cyborg future. You know, one of the best books that I, I've read is by I think Sapiens by yeah. Noval Noah Harari. I think his second one, what was that called, Homo Deus or Homo something? Deus, yeah. yeah, where I think he talks about where we're headed, or and uh, he talks about like essentially cyborg. You know, the good and bad of it, because then it becomes, you know, capitalism around it. Uh, it's just like, you know, the first flat screen TV. I was with my wife and she was like, oh, look at that new flat screen TV. You know, it's 1500 bucks and we should get it. And I said, so Karen, that's $15,000. And she goes, are you kidding me? <laughs> and we walked away. But it's going to be the same thing with like cyborgs. All right, you can have this uh, camera in your eye. It's only $3 million. But over time, it drives down the price. It's, it's straight A economics. And all of a sudden, you know, everybody's able to get a uh, something in their eye. Anyway, anything else you want to say about the, the book or your UN exploits? I will tell you that a lot of people have told me they found the book extremely helpful. Uh, they've actually been able to use it to apply for their businesses and actually come up with some novel AI solutions. And some of the framework, obviously, we apply in the UN AI for good stuff. But if everybody reads this book, what do what do I get from it? What's the outcome you drive? You're going to understand, obviously, a little bit about what AI is, what it can do, what it can't do. But more importantly, it's going to 
it's going to give you the framework to understand how should I be thinking about it? So what should I do? It's going to help you answer that question. How do I get started? And it's going to expand your mind to the possibilities because part of the book is a, a set of interviews that I've done with people and people are fascinated by some of the work that you had three lawyers build an AI associate lawyer. You had a guy that's a therapist built a, a tool to help depressed and suicidal teenagers. So it's, it's really this empowerment. Now, the, the interesting thing you actually bring up, Al, is it's, it's not going to teach you how to be a, this great disruptive thinker. That's actually my next book, which I'm about 80% done oh, with. Oh, really? Like what everyone says, think differently. No one ever teaches you how to do that. And so the way I've done it, I had my own framework called Tuckbo. That's actually my second book. I'm going to share my framework with the world. But um, at, towards the end of this month, I'm actually going to put more stuff on my website to explain to people how this Tuckbo actually works. All right, so let's talk. That's where I was going next. Uh, can you at least talk to Tuckbo? I know that it sounds like it's going to be in your next book, so we're going to get it in writing here soon. But do you have a high-level explanation you can provide on it? Yeah, so Tuckbo, it actually stands for the steps, which is think different, which is really about the, the ideation. So I share the techniques and stuff. So how do you actually come up with a disruptive idea? The U is understand different. So then how do you validate the idea that's actually a good idea and it actually creates benefits? The C is create different. So this is how you actually then build your idea. How do you design and actually implement it to a real world like solution or service? The B is be different, which is now, okay, then how do you drive adoption? How do you get people to, to basically get truth and trust in your whatever technological solution you've done? or non-technical, it doesn't have to be about, you know, like emerging technology, but how you actually showcase to get people to understand the value proposition. And then O is own different. So how do you actually build the infrastructure around it to be actually be successful? And I always talk about like Tesla. Why, why, is, why was Tesla like the, really the first successful electric vehicle company? It's not because they radicalized batteries or the sleek design. Tesla was the first company to actually say, we'll build the infrastructure because most people were worried about running out of a charge and we're like, where can I charge my car? Tesla actually went out and built a supercharging station. So they negotiated with the shopping centers, and the airports, and all these places, and they built an app to help you find all these things. So Tuckbo is really soup to nuts from idea to, you know, throwing it out in the market, all the things you actually have to do to be successful in disruption. So can we get this today or are we eager to see your next book? You don't have to wait till my next book. As people who know in the publishing world, books don't turn around quickly. I've actually I've actually developed a workshop that I've actually been teaching to, to several companies already, as well as some individuals who are actually using it for things like their own career development. So I have I have stuff that is readily consumable. And I'm in the process right now of updating my website so I can share that with people. And where can folks reach you? Best place. My website is just my name, neilsohoda.com, or you can always follow me on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, all social media. I'm constantly posting the latest stuff around AI and disruptive thinking and my work with the UN. So, but you're also Mr. CEO as well. 
how do you find time for that? Or is this part of everything we talked about part of your, your new company? Tell us about your, your company. Well, the, the company is focused on combining AI, the metaverse, and cognitive science together. So every, everything I do is kind of complementary. There's some level of complement to it. And this, this company actually started off as a research by some other cognitive scientists about 12 years ago. Mm-hmm. And it's really about solving large, complex problems. And the interesting that they, thing they would learn from this is as they were doing this, yeah, they came, these, these organizations came up with some very creative solutions, but it actually sustained uh, development in terms of creative thinking. So it was primarily C-suite and the board out there. But when I met these guys about a year and a half ago, I was looking at it, we realized that they were getting ready to kind of commercialize. They want to go from research to commercialization. What we learned was this isn't just a C-suite board solution. This is something that could apply to anybody. And so one of the things we're actually doing today is we've actually created a a virtual world to help people tackle mental health issues. And so we're calling it a journey. And so you actually go through some of these challenging mental situations, again, in this mirror world, mirror, mirror verse. So you actually get exposed to the safe environment and you can actually learn coping mechanisms and actually build your resilience before you actually go through it. You're going to have to tell me how that works, though. How do you deal with mental challenges in a virtual world? So this is where the cognitive science aspect comes into play. So we kind of we know what the, the scenarios are, and we use AI to actually generate scenarios we haven't thought of and randomly kind of go. So it's not like you, you do the, the exercise. It's the same thing every time. It's actually different every time. And so as you go through the AI, it's actually analyzing your responses and see how you're developing. And so as you kind of grow and mature, it makes it more complicated, more complex. So you keep developing that mental muscle. I, I compare this to like, you know, we were talking about basketball earlier. You think about like at one point, LeBron James was the best basketball player. How do you get to be the best? Well, you keep playing against people that are better than you. When you're the best, you're plateaued, right? You don't have any better competition. Well, with AI and the metaverse, we, we basically created a robotic basketball player that's better than LeBron James and will always be better than LeBron James. So now he still has competition to play against. So he's constantly improving his game to levels that he couldn't do before. It's the same type of thinking what we're doing here with the company, that you're, fa- you're facing more complex challenges all the time, things that we haven't even anticipated thanks to the AI event generator, to keep exercising your mental muscle. What we found is that because you're in the safe space, people are willing to take different kinds of risks or more risks. And that's what leads to these, some of these creative solutions. Did you say LeBron was the best? So he's no longer the best? Today, I don't know if you can say LeBron is the best player in the NBA. Who would you say is the best? Oh, man, that's uh, I would have to go with Giannis. I have to go. Really? Who's the best player? Who's the GOAT of all time? You can tell from uh, how old I am from this answer. I I think it's actually Michael Jordan. No offense to LeBron. (laughs) He's a fantastic player. But I think what you saw Michael Jordan do, especially back then, was just phenomenal. I actually agree with you, just so I'm on record. I agree with you as well. (laughs) Easy for me to say. You know, I was talking to, uh, I think, one of my kids about this, and you know, we were arguing back and forth and, you know, I said, look, 
I think because all these games change, the world changes, like there's multiple greatest of all times based on generations. But I think George's the best. I'm with you on that, man. <laughs> I, I, think, I think it's about the impact to the sport. That's really, I, you know, oh, I, I remember back in the day, so the mid-90s, they were talking about who has been more impactful in their sport, Jordan or Wayne Gretzky, right? And I remember saying, thinking, like, why is this even a question? Jordan has had a tremendous impact on the NBA, but Wayne Gretzky literally brought ice hockey to the United States. You know, that that's huge. He was, a, he was a, an amazing player, don't get me wrong, right? He was good at anticipating predicting. Like he's always said, like, my secret was, I don't go where the puck is. I go where I think the puck will be. Yeah, but yeah. because of him, I think ice hockey got really popularized throughout the entire United States, not just the cold weather states. So what do you do for fun, man? Uh, well, I'm kind of old now, so it's more about watching sports than playing sports. Um I do like uh, I do like reading. I'm there's always new stuff coming out, so I'm a life lifetime lifelong learner. And uh, you know these these days I'm uh, you know just spending time with the kids because you know they're they're entering teenage years, so it's like you know they're it's going to reach the point soon where they don't want to hang around with mom and dad anymore. So just enjoying the the, the few precious moments I can with them. Yeah, I don't know when you sleep because I <laughs> noticed that uh, you're on a lot of boards as well. I, I am. I try. My 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 motto in life is I want to try and leave the world at least as good as I found it, if not better. And so I try to add value wherever I can. And to be honest, I think nonprofits do a lot of important work. Big companies do a lot of work, but you know, entrepreneurs—they're the big disruptors. They're the ones willing to take risks and find a different way of doing something. So whatever I can do to help accelerate that, I do. Well, you worked at IBM. It kind of take, takes over a little bit, <laughs> so I'm not I'm not on any boards today. But if anybody's listening out there and they're interested, I, I need to I need to start expanding in that area as well. Terrific, thank you for being here, man. This has been an interesting discussion. We went into a lot of different areas. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that you wish I would have? I can't think of anything. It was pretty comprehensive, Al. I will just maybe share one tidbit of advice with everybody: is that yeah. risk is not a bad thing. I know I tossed that word out a lot, but risk. We tend to think about the negative risks, the stuff that will go mm-hmm. wrong. Risk's just uncertainty. There's a lot of things that could go right. There's a lot of untapped benefits. And so I hope that at least one takeaway from all the work with the UN and all these things, look for those positive risks. Teach yourself to do that. That's how you become a disruptor. That's how you get ahead in life. I got you. Hey, man, thank you for being here. Interesting discussion. Greatly appreciate it. Wish you the best. If you need any help with the UN, you know where to call me. <laughs> I'll I jump in. Yeah, I want to. I want a front row with Mr. Biden. I want to have a chat. So just arrange that for me, if you would. We'll, we'll, we'll work on that. We'll get you a couple of board seats as well. We'll work on that as well. <laughs> and your golf game. Greatly appreciate it. Thank you for being here, man. My pleasure. Uh, as always, hit us on almartintalksdata at gmail.com. We love that you're listening and you're here with us. Tell a friend. Tell us how we're doing. And until next time, look, we'll see you on the podcast. See you.